Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1895, the archaeologist Flinders Petrie was excavating a burial site in the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes. He discovered the tomb of a priest who died around the middle of the 17th century BC and had been buried with a chest containing a bundle of pens and several rolls of papyrus. This hall of Egyptian text is one of the most important ever found and contains a fragment of a work now seen as the masterpiece of ancient Egyptian literature. The tale of Sinuha tells the story of a court official who flees Egypt after the death of the pharaoh and spends many years abroad before finally returning home. It deals with events which are known to have taken place around 4,000 years ago, although it's not clear whether the poem is a work of pure fiction or has some basis in reality. It was widely copied for many centuries after it first appeared, but why was it so popular and what can it tell us about the ancient Egyptian world and about early fiction? With me to discuss the tale of Sinua are Richard Parkinson, Professor of Egyptology and Fellow of Queen's College at the University of Oxford, Aidan Dodson, Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Bristol, and Roland Enmarsh, Senior Lecturer in Egyptology, Egyptology at the University of Liverpool. Richard Parkinson, the history of ancient Egypt is conventionally divided into three areas or kingdoms over about a 2,000-year span. Can you give us some hard idea how that breaks down? Well, the first of them, the Great Old Kingdom, is the Pyramid Age, and that's about 2570 to 2150 BC. Then the next is the Middle Kingdom, about 1950 to 1650. And it's followed by the New Kingdom, which is the Age of Empire, about 1550 to 1050 BC. And then the history gets more complicated as Egypt is more involved with the other great empires of the ancient world. So it's an enormous span. It's an absolutely enormous span. I mean, some empire. It's a huge empire. And in the Middle Kingdom, Egypt is very centralised, but is also looking eastwards and looking south. And so it's very involved with foreign affairs. I know this is a convenient and conventional breakdown, but are there continuities there? Are we having continual disruptions, warlords breaking in and so on? It's hard to say. The Egyptians valued central authority very highly, and these are periods they recognised, but the so-called intermediate periods are not the ages of chaos they were often thought to be. It's a very continuous tradition, and the written stream of tradition, of course, continues throughout. Now, how did the, um, the book, the poem we're going to talk about, where and how did that fit into your basic scheme? In broad terms, it's pure Middle Kingdom, In more exact terms, it gets complicated. The first earliest manuscript was discovered um, in the 1830s and dates from around 1800 BCE. The the, the date sounds to me like 1880s, 1890s. BC, we're talking 4,000 years ago. About 1800 BC, the first manuscript um, was written that we have, and the poem deals with events from around 1908. BC and the following 30 years. So the poem must have been written somewhere in the period between those two dates. But we don't know when, we don't know who wrote it, we simply know sometime before 1800 the poem was composed. So we've no idea who wrote it, we've no other evidence around it. Did the context in which it was found offer anything? No. Uh, as usual, we have the manuscripts and we know they were 
discovered by an agent of the British consul around 1830, the very first manuscript, and that comes from an official's tomb. But we don't know where the tomb was or who he was. With the Ramesseum papyri, which are a bit later, we have the context it must have been a priest's burial. So, so this just came out of the earth, really? It came out of the earth, and it came out of the earth with three other wonderful poetic manuscripts. So it, it's one of the most... It's a wonderful find. And one, unfortunately, the British Museum failed to buy because it was too expensive, which is why they're now known as the Berlin Papyri. That'll, that'll cut you to the quick again. Oh, it did. <laughs> no, well, it is. Yes, no. <laughs> I see you still carry a grudge against your Oh, ancestors. massive. No, it's the tragedy of my career, I can tell you. <laughs> Aidan Dodson, it said it to be, as we heard, beginning of the Egyptian Middle Kingdom, which began about 1960 BC. How would you characterise that period? Can we go into more detail? What was that period like in Egyptian history? The Middle Kingdom has often been called <coughs> the feudal period of Egyptian history because although there is a strong centralised government involved, also, there are far many of the provincial rulers have large tombs, which which we don't have at many other periods, which suggests that the country was, say, although with a strong centralised authority, there was also a large amount of local government involved there, and that we see that there, therefore there seems to be quite a lot of um, provincial. Um, local culture and so on. This is probably a hangover from the period which comes directly before the Middle Kingdom, which was when Egypt had largely lost centralised control and therefore the provinces became the main uh, building blocks, if you like, of the, of the state. Then the countries reunited, a little bit before the um, poem we're talking about um, was, was composed, but then there's still that, bed, that underlying bedrock of... Of provincial, of provincial rulers there as well. Can you thicken out the idea of culture? What are we talking about? Can you tell listeners when you... We know what we mean by culture generally. What was culture then to them? I suppose... I suppose culture to them was the things which made you an Egyptian. The things about the common... Your common um, understanding of what religion, what, what the gods were all about... Um, the idea that you had that there was a, an overall ruler who was the god's representative on earth, a divine king. Whether that king was regarded him, himself as a god is another, another issue. But there was this idea that there was a, a divinely um, defined order of things. The Egyptians called it a thing called ma'at, which, which is very loosely translated as truth or order, but also means the way the world ought to be. So there's a certain sort of... There's an Egyptianness which which underpins everything. So the culture is built around <coughs> around a sense of religion. I'm not sure whether that's quite true. It's probably more in the set because bear in mind in that period you can't really distinguish religion yes. from culture. You know, in very much Islam is a way of life rather than simply a religion nowadays. I think the Egyptians would take the same kind of view that there was a whole there was a cosmic order and. And, and teasing out what was politics and what was religion is something, if you asked an Egyptian that question about his religion, he'd say, what do you mean? He would think about his way of life. But when we think of Egyptian, when we go to the British Museum and so on, we see things, lots of things. And what things were being made then at the time in which we're talking? Well, you've got... Most things which survive tend to be from funerary contexts. We've got... You know, coffins, the mummies which were in them, the things that came in the tombs with them, including people's reading material, what Richard has been talking about there, about these papyri coming from somebody's tomb. They're also producing the tombs themselves. 
Beyond that, you've got um, the places of worship, the temples. Although, many, though from the period we're talking about now, the Middle Kingdom, very few actually survived. Many were then rebuilt over the coming hundred thousands of years. But all of and, and throughout them, you've got a very distinctive art form, and also, of course, everything is covered with hieroglyphs, the Egyptian language. And that language is something which unites everything we call ancient Egypt. It starts around 3000 BC, and it's, st and it's still being used, at least in temples, um, when, when paganism is abolished by the, uh, under Theodosius in the 4th century AD. So probably one thing which reunites all of this is ultimately... It is there, there is this lang which lasts for thousands of years. It's still with us in the Coptic Church. Though in this tale, tale of Sinoa, there's two Egyptian rulers who are known to have existed. Now, you, I'm going to tie this. You get my, you, you correct my pronunciation. Amenemhat and Senwoseret. Yeah, Amenemhat the first and Senwoseret the first. Yeah. There you go. Right now, tell us about, briefly about those two. Okay, they're the first two kings of what we call the twelfth dynasty. Richard was talking about division into kingdoms and so on. Those are subdivided into dynasties, which are in big handfuls, very much like our House of Windsor, House of Plantagenet, that kind of thing. Group of of kings who come together, and Amenemhat the first is the first of that of of that line. He, we think that before he became king, he was the vizier of his predecessor, a king called Monjuhotep IV, who was the last king of the 11th dynasty. And we've got, there's, a, there's an account of, uh, of him going out to um, quarrying material for the king's sarcophagus. We assume he therefore, he, this, this Amenemhat, who is this vizier, is the same person. And wh whether he uh, um, seized the throne or whether or not he was simply the heir in that, Lack of a lack of a lack of a, a, an heir. We, we, we're not sure. So that's that's him. He reigned for about thirty odd years, and he very much reestablishes sort of normality, if you like. Um, and his son is Senwosret the first, who is the other major character, royal character in the in the, in the tale of Senuhe. And he, as it, his, the death of the first one, as it were, is the starting point of the story. Um, Roland and Marsh, can you give us a brief, uh, not brief, can you give us a summary of the story? The central character of the story, Snuha, is a courtier and he works in the private parts of the palace uh, the cap in the capital of Egypt. At the start of the story, he has uh, accompanied Prince Senwosrit, the heir to the throne, out on a military expedition to Libya. And while they're on their way back to Egypt, a message is sent from the capital that the old king, Amenemhat, has passed away. And Prince Senwosrit makes a beeline for Egypt. He returns to the palace, presumably to secure the throne, uh, without even telling the rest of his expedition. A message is also sent to the other royal children who are on the expedition. And while one of them is being summoned, Senuhe overhears, unofficially from a distance, the news. And he's overwhelmed with terror. Trembling falls over his limbs. He doesn't know what to do. And he immediately runs away, leaping and bounding, um, and becomes a fugitive. He explains that he, he thinks that strife is going to happen. So the implication is that there might be uh, trouble with the royal succession. He then flees eastwards, back towards Egypt, 
crosses the Nile and then heads northeastwards to the borders of ancient Egypt and then exits Egypt altogether, um, going into the deserts of northern Sinai. Unfortunately, he there uh, runs out of water um, and very nearly dies of thirst. He says, this is the taste of death at one point. Uh, he's then rescued by uh, Bedouin, uh, sand travellers or sand farers who sand uh, travellers yes nice, the sand farers yeah, the ones who travel sand um, and uh, they rescue him bring him back to health feed him give him milk and water um, and send him on his way and after that he spends a certain amount of time travelling around the lands of Syria Palestine um, where eventually he is made uh, an honoured retainer of a uh, local sheikh called Amanenshi and Amanenshi appoints Sanuha to be uh, the controller of one of his border areas and to fight against his enemies. And Sanuha marries the daughter of Amanenshi and he builds a life for himself in Syria, or Lebanon possibly, um, outside of the Egyptian world. And eventually he's challenged to battle by uh, an enemy. And he has a very dramatically described duel, which he wins... And uh, he then reflects on his life and his career outside of Egypt. And he realises that, ultimately, outside of Egypt, his life is devoid of real meaning. And he suddenly, urgently asks God to let him go home. What's more important than being buried in the land where I was born? The king in Egypt, Senwazrit, sends a message to him and says... You're, it's fine for you to come home. There's nothing wrong. I'm not angry with you. And Sunuhe responds graciously, returns to Egypt, and at the royal court is presented to the king, and the king forgives him for his flight, and he's restored to a position as an honoured official at the court of King Semwazrit, and in due course he's given a splendid burial in the royal cemetery. Well, you didn't miss a thing. Very good, thank you very much. So, listeners, you know everything about this 600-line work of 600-line poem of fiction. Uh, thank you. Richard, Richard Parkinson. How we talk at this time, uh, of a time when there was literature around, there were many books, many poems, many... Yes. The thing is, written literature, fictional, poetic literature, seems to be an innovation of the 12th dynasty. And... Presumably there were stories, songs, for fun, for pleasure, already throughout the Old Kingdom. But the royal court of the 12th dynasty seems to expand the uses of writing and it starts putting on papyrus very sophisticated works. And Sinuhe really plays with all the different existing genres of the time, so not only the fictional ones, but also the monumental ones, royal records, administrative documents hymns to the king it sort of it has an encyclopedic feel an epic feel it really pulls in very many forms of writing in a way which i think implies literature must have existed for quite some time it's it's not a first attempt at poetry it's drawing on a very long tradition but can we take this little on a bit further, Aidan Aiden Dodson? It's modelled on... <coughs> Richard's mentioned the inscriptions on Egyptian tombs. These are very useful uh, 
background information for this poem. Can you tell us more about yeah. them, what they were, why they were, how many, and so on? Well, in, in Egyptian tomb chapels, there's often an inscription called, we often call it an autobiography, probably better a self-presentation, whereby the person basically tries to present themselves in the best possible light and often in doing so um, talks about how they, were, they, they provided charity. They also want to present how close they were to the king, all those kinds of things. And we that's have the, very like the Victorian tombs. Mm-hmm. Oh, very, oh, very ab- absolutely. Many a yeah. parish church. Absolutely. Know, yeah. And often what we, certainly in the old kingdom, some of the history history we've got is actually from there. They, because they want to show how wonderful they were, they give us an account of what they did in their lives. And it seems that a lot of the structure of Sinuhe is of, owes, it owes a lot to these kinds of, self, of tomb self-presentations where they will include facts, um, talk about how they, how they dealt with things. So the, these, the, these, these kinds of self-presentations I think are, are, are crucial in understanding this where the concept for Sinuhe comes from. But there is, which we will get to now, but just mention it so we can trail it as a way inside our own programme, there is an essential difference that it is thought to be fiction. Yes, but whether or not... But how, I think the, the big argument within Egyptology, is it 100% fiction or is it based on, on reality? Is it a fictionalised version of, of somebody's real life or is it purely fiction. That's, I think that remains a, a matter for some degree of debate. I think purely fiction is a grail. I mean, historical fiction is now, as you see, with Hilary Mantel in The Ascendant, mm. and quite rightly, it's very well... And we have no problem calling that fiction. Whether you've got... Whether, it, whether there ever was a man called Sanuhe mm. or not, I yeah. think is the big question. Yeah, I think Egyptologists are often quite naive. They assume there's fiction and history as black and white categories. And Sinuhe is clearly somewhere between the two. It's very, it has a lot of historical facts in it, a very detailed historical setting. But whether there was an individual called Sinuhe, I, I, I personally would doubt, because his, his name is just too good to be true. It has all these poetic resonances. Such as? Um, he's the son of the sycamore. Uh, the sycamore is the tree the, representing the, name the home. son of a sycamore. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. And throughout the poem, there's allusions to the goddess of the sycamore as embodied in the queen. So it's an awfully neat name for what happens to him. And, but everything that does happen to him is entirely plausible, seems to fit perfectly with the early 12th dynasty that we know both at home and abroad. Including being lost in the desert and found by a Bedouin, fed milk and water. Well, Bedouins certainly feed milk and water, um, and people must have got lost in the desert. But what distinguishes Sinuhe is, as Aidan said, normally the autobiographies tell of a glorious career, and this is a career that goes spectacularly wrong. You don't normally hear about people getting lost and nearly dying in the desert because no Victorian would want to say that on their parish church. But Sinuhe does, and that's the heart of the story. So you think, basically, well, hey, can, uh, yes, uh, I'm getting involved in this. Right. It's awfully involving. It is, <laughs> it's a story. Yeah. Um, the question that's never answered, really, uh, Roland Enmar, is why he fled. It's, you enter in your account of the story, he, I think, I can't remember, you used the word panicked or fearful, but there's no sense of really why he did it. Well, in some ways, that's the central question of the story, and it's never given a simple answer. Several different possible explanations are hinted at, 
and often juxtaposed and sometimes outrightly denied by uh, different by different characters at different points in the story. Um, if you want to try and read it into a historical context, uh, Egyptian listeners and readers of this poem would have been aware that uh, there, is, there was a tradition, uh, and indeed other literary texts, that uh, claimed that King Amenemhat, the old king, had in fact met a violent death in the private chambers of his palace in an assassination. And so the message that Sunuha overhears probably... Um, would have been understood by the ancient audience to have been the king has been assassinated and that's why he fears that strife might actually happen and so the most historicizing explanation for his flight would be fear at effectively a civil war over the succession and fleeing um, from Egypt as a result of that but when Sunuhe finds himself abroad he's asked again and again by different characters why, you fl why did you flee and he blames different aspects of himself in the Egyptian world. He, exp he claims that his heart led him to flee. And in Egyptian culture, the heart is a vital part of the human being. It's the seat of the intellect and the emotions. But it's not totally reliable. It's potentially flighty, and it can let you down. Mm. And so Sunuhe tries to externalise, to some degree, his fault, his guilt, by saying that his heart let him down. But elsewhere, um, he claims that it is God, in, not, not a particular God, he just uses the Jeric word God, who fated his flight. And he asks at one point, uh, whichever God fated this flight, be merciful, be gracious to me and send me home. So we have an opposition between the idea that the gods control human fate or possibly that the human heart is in fact responsible. And there's an unresolved tension in the text between the order of the world, the, the way that the gods control human beings, they created the human heart, but they made it um, unreliable. And this is never explicitly resolved in the text. There are other um, explanations as well. Uh, the daughters of King Semwazri. Can I just pause for a second there, Ron? It seems to me that already what the three of you are saying is that there's much more flexibility and shades of a meaning and in early Egyptian literature than, than mm -hmm. had generally come across. We regard it as monolithic and, and uh, in many, many ways. You can take that metaphor right through the yes. current. But we're talking, about it. we're talking about the way we would be talking about a work of fiction. This is every bit as subtle yes. as yes. The, the great works of literature from Western and That's other so cultures with which Full we're more familiar today. Full of meanings, and and so there are all these different explanations and nothing is ever simply stated. Did he flee because of the king? Was he afraid of Sam Walsh's anger because he fled and deserted his position? He did not follow his lord. But also it's very modern to hold back the real reason, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yes. That's very clever. I think we it's would exactly say nowadays like, yeah. very clever. It's exactly like a passage to India where it's never resolved what happens in the Madhavar caves and it remains at the heart of this were people are constantly asking why, what is the meaning of this life story and it's left very much unresolved at the end. Do you think it's left very deliberately left? Oh deliberately yes. and the poet of course stages it as a, a funerary formal grandiose autobiography and then destroys it through most of its course so it's the exact opposite of what it's claiming to be the Wonder story of a glorious Sorry, career. Please. One of the things that's remarkable to me is that it's so comparatively short, 600 lines of poetry, but I'm told by you and others that it's extraordinarily dense language, but even so, 600 lines. And yet we're already finding more and more in it, and, but 
uh, although Roland's given us a good run through, there are more meanings in it, aren't there? It's, the life story is is staged not just as a sequence of episodes, but as very vivid scenes and moments. The moment he panics, the moment he fights this foreign challenger and tries to define his identity abroad, the moment when he returns to the Egyptian court. And it, it's almost... Um, it's rather like cinema. You see very vivid flashbacks through a life, some of which contradict each other. They echo, they resonate together. I think it's extraordinarily subtle in its architecture, in the, in the form and the individual style of words, of lines. Very, very As dense. I understand it, it, is, it, it has a symmetry in, in the very structure itself. Yes. A, one, two, three in the middle, four, yes. five, echoing one, two. And the, at the very centre is the moment when Sinu Hef fights a foreigner. And what better way than staging a, a clash of cultural identities? He's trying to find out, is he an Egyptian? Is he a foreigner? He's living abroad. What, what does it mean to be Egyptian? But again, the wonderful subtlety is that when he wins over the foreigner, he utters a non-Egyptian war cry of victory. Yes, and he then realises he's fine, he's perfect, he's got everything he wants, and it's meaningless. And that is so he's not an Egyptian, but then it is meaningless. He he is an Egyptian, but then he's saying to himself, because I've done that, I can't. I must wonder now whether I am an Egyptian. That's a better way to put it. And he he says in a in a soliloquy, where his mind changes as he speaks. I've got white linen. I've got fine linen. I've got everything an Egyptian has. Somebody who is a coward, who is a foreigner, wouldn't do this. Memory of me is in the Egyptian palace, and at that moment. His life falls to pieces, and he realizes what he really wants, wants is to go home. Which Aidan Dodson takes us to one of the important themes of the second half, a massive theme: the idea of homecoming, mm. particularly the idea of going back to Egypt for an Egyptian to have the proper rituals of burial observed. It's no good being buried in a what is it, a ram skin? Uh, that it doesn't work. You've got to be buried properly in Egypt. Yeah. And that is of great pull, isn't it? Yeah, there's a great, a very clear that you, know, you to make sure that you went through to the next world properly, everything had to be done properly. It's quite clear amongst everything else which Sunuha is feeling is he cannot be confident that out where he is in you know, in Syria, Palestine, that that will be done for him. So apart from any sort of putting any other demons to rest. He wants to make sure that when he is buried, he's buried by people who know what they're doing, and therefore the rituals be carried out properly, and therefore he can get, may be sure that he is going to get the eternal life he believes you know, is, is due to him by all those rituals and the equipment being done properly. Can you just give us a brief sum, up sum, uh, summary? I didn't think I'd ever say up sum. Uh, of, uh, of those rituals. Well, the sort of, first of all, there is the preservation of his body to make sure that doesn't decay. The process of mummification, the artificial desiccation of the body, is to make sure the body will remain intact forever. And the body, and there's a belief that the body needs to remain intact for the spirit to survive. When the actual moment of, of burial comes, the, uh, the thing called, there's a thing called the opening of the mouth, whereby the uh, mummy is ritually brought back to life again by a, by, by, by a priest who um, offers up and adds to his mouth so he'll be able to speak again um, and then there's also the fact that once he's actually in the tomb then offerings will be regularly placed 
or a tomb will have been constructed with all the right magical formulae so that food and drink will be magically provided for him for eternity. So all those things, so he won't go hungry, thirsty, and will continue to exist forever. Roland Henmarch, can we say something about the style of this work, how it compares with other sorts of Egyptian literature at the time, about 4,000 years ago? I think we can say that in terms of the language it uses, it's very, very dense. It's exp- lots is expressed in few words. Um, it uses the full range of the Egyptian language in terms of grammatical constructions. The vocabulary is full of recondite and exotic Syrian phrases. Um, and in that sense, uh, it, it's very noticeable when you teach this uh, in a university today. The mm. students usually di- are dismayed at how difficult it is compared to some of the more easily readable texts that were created at the same time. So it's very dense, it's very rich. Um, as Richard explained earlier, it's also uh, got many different genres within it. It has letters from the king and to the king, it has praise poems, it has uh, tomb biographical descriptions and so in some ways it's a compendium of the sorts of writing one might have found at that time. What does the fact of its richness say to you? I think it explains uh, why this was so popular for the Egyptians. It's it's not um, purely uh, a text that tells them about a historical event or even a fictionalised historical setting. It's uh, the Egyptians love new phrases, extraordinary words that haven't been tired out by repetition, as another poem says. And so it's novelty, really. I think that the the Egyptians love the exoticism, travel in foreign lands. It explores how you might live outside of Egypt and outside of the Egyptian world view. Uh, and all of these things, I think, are what, me- uh, what lead to its uh, con- enduring fascination for the Egyptians for the next 750 years. It rather suggests, though, that it was one of many, doesn't it? If this was being written in such a complicated way, you can't really think, well, this is a one-off. This sort of complex mm-hmm. uh, but popular uh, among the, I suppose, minority of, uh, of literate people must have been around, briefly. When it was found, the manuscript from 1800 BC, it was found with two other poems, and they're very similar in density and complexity. One's a dialogue about death, one's a great plea for justice, which is so vivid that Ardaf Suef is still citing it in connection with Tahrir Square. So it's part of a tradition of very vibrant works. Roland, it's been suggested that this was propaganda... Uh, for the fair, it's another suggestion. What do any of you make of that? Does that make any sense? Um, I think we can say that the literature that was created in this time period is courtly literature. A fundamental concern of most of these poems is the court, the king, the relationship of courtiers to the king. Um, and as such, it has been traditional for much of the 20th century to read these texts as having effectively been created by a small circle at the court to put the court's <coughs> point of view um, and disseminate it. And so this is what we might call the propaganda model of literature. Um, Sanuhe, the, the texter, shows uh, an all-powerful King Senwazrit granting an amnesty to an official of dubious uh, 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 um, loyalty. And you might easily see, if you wanted to read it like that, how that has a propagandistic value on behalf of King Senwazrit and his dynasty. However, um, I think it's very important not to forget that these are works of art. As we've explained, there are exotic terms, interesting narratives, interesting uh, depictions of life outside of Egypt. And we've got to remember that 
people probably enjoyed these. Uh, we must imagine that people read and uh, listened to performances of these texts and actually would have had pleasure out of them. Well, there are great scenes, aren't there? The battle with the uh, the battle with the man with axes and arrows and such. The, the almost dying in the desert. The return to court in Egypt where his children scream because they don't recognise him. And so it, it isn't as if it, it goes along in a thoughtful interior way all the time. We want yeah. to come in. If that's a little, little interesting thing is that actually there's quite a lot of this literature which survives is set around Amenemhat I. There's there's one which is supposed to be his sort of death his post posthumous sort of testament to his son after his assassination. It's another one which is supposed to be a prophecy which brings about his accession. So I think there is something very special about that whole nexus, Amenemhat I, Senmostret the First, because an awful lot of you know Part of the issue is 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 the preservation. You know, that these things have been survived by 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 accident. We've got quite a lot which comes from, or is set at least, in that period. Um, I, I come to a moment. Just the more we talk, the more the way the court operates is is making it much less like the slab like. Uh, Egypt that we see in, in in a way metaphorically mummified. It's poets, it's courts, it's it's taking advantage of or taking liberties with inscriptions and so on. So, have you every any idea of the level of literacy? Ooh, that's a good question. It's often been sort of put in sort of two or three percent, but really it's, it's purely it's really a guesswork because yeah. we don't know how many people really actually lived in Egypt at this time. And then of the proportion of those might well have been literate. Probably it's something like that kind of small, small single, single figures. It's the people, the literate people, are people who are who are running the country. So it's the bureaucrats fundamentally, the the, the, the priesthood. But beyond that, it's so it's a very small. I don't know whether either the other but two have got the, thoughts on. Any, on that. One of the things that's, got, that's very interesting about civilizations for, for many thousands of years is how few literate people it takes to make a civilization which does great things. Richard? Ab- absolutely. I think our problems in interpreting Sinuha as either being propaganda or being subversive, they're very similar to questions that come up with Shakespearean drama. And we're in a very similar courtly society where literature can only be produced with the agreement of the central authorities, but at the same time is tackling some very dark themes. And, of course, through performance, works like this would reach a slightly wider audience than the strictly literate bureaucrats. So the performance, uh, as in Shakespeare, obviously, the performance was the thing. That's how most Egyptians, vast majority, were there theatres, were there places where performances were done? No. I think the best model is to think of modern Arabic performances of epic literature where it's done at a soiree, it's done in an evening entertainment but I think performance is probably the way that most people experienced a work like this and it is when it's staged, we've tried modern recitals, it comes across as incredibly dramatic and you really get a sense of the structure Now you heard of a papyrus in front of you Yes, yeah. and you can read ancient Egyptian from 4,000 years ago so this is an incredible treat you're going to read part of I hope you are Yes. uh, you're going to read part of this What I'll do is um, just one couplet uh, which is my favourite two lines of the poem which is the moment when Sinuher returns to the court and it's done very formally, very grandly and the king announces to the queen and the children, 
you know, this is Sinuhe, he's come back as a foreigner offspring of the barbarians, and you expect everybody to continue very formally. And what happens is the poet says, The queen gave a very great shriek, and all the children cried out as one. And then they turn back to the king and they say, Is this really him, sovereign my lord? And the king says, This is really him. And it, it's just like the recognition scene of Leon, uh, Leon Cordelia. Very simple language, but it has a huge emotional impact. This is pushing it a bit and imposing it. Can you read a bit more or read that again? Because I was not quite prepared for it. Yeah, the, um, the, the couplet is... Uh, Wedes seba aaweret mesu nisut emdiut wat. She gave a very great cry, and all the royal children shrieked as one. Have you got the next bit at your fingers? And there's uh, the king says en enentef emmaat. They say to the king, and he says entef pu emmaat. Jedin's hemef en sen entef pu emmaat. And of course, as Aidan said, ma'at is the key word of Egyptian culture. It's order, it's justice. And the poet sneaks in this key word of Egyptian culture. Is it him in truth? Really him? Yes, it is. This is the truth about Sinuha. There we are, words from the tombs of the pyramids. Indeed, it's, oh, right. it's wonderful stuff. The... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Roland, Roland March, how was this... Well, we've talked about it being um, read and performed, and we've just had a little glimpse. I could done with a lot more, but perhaps <laughs> so you can do a recital Indeed. Radio Indeed. Four later in the evening. The, um, how did this fare as Egypt in the next, let's say, 1,000 years in Egyptian history? Well, it uh, becomes a classic of Egyptian culture. So we have the papyri we've discussed from the Middle Kingdom, but from later periods we have, uh, we have um, one more papyrus um, from around about 1350 BC, by which time the text is um, over 350 years old, uh, maybe 400 or so years old. Um, but also we have an awful lot of ostraca, and ostraca are potsherds or flakes of limestone which are a cheaper writing alternative than writing on expensive papyrus. And a lot of these survive from the Egyptian New Kingdom, um, which is a period approximately 1500 to 1100 BC, and they appear to be scribal exercises. So Sunuhe has become part of the uh, curriculum for students learning literacy and learning to write in the by now archaic Middle Egyptian prestigious stage of the language. And they're quite advanced students, they're not beginners. These are people who've got wonderful calligraphy, but they're copying out passages, set sections of the text. And we have uh, several dozen of these uh, from various parts of Egypt and the New Kingdom. Can we develop, Aidan, can we develop the idea of influence? Yeah, because I think one of the things which has been pointed out is the way is how rich the text is and the fact it contains bits which are from autobiographies, hymns and so on. So I think it's probably one of the reasons why it was chosen as part of the curriculum, if you like, because it allowed the, the student to actually see ex examples of all these different kinds of genres in one text. And from that, they would then be able to... That would probably then uh, give them a basis for producing new material in that same genre. Because 
Middle Egyptian was that became the, the, the classical form of the language. So if you're doing a, a hymn of praise to the king, you write it in Middle Egyptian. You've got some very nice examples of hymns of praise in Sanuhe. So therefore, having Sanuhe as your as your basic text gives you a very good basis to uh, to do to do to carry on your Scrabble career. What influence has this had on writers since its discovery by Petrie in 1895? It was lost, of course, for many centuries, um, and its treatment in Europe has been a bit trivial. Um, it's been retold for children's stories, and there's a truly horrible rewriting by an Australian author um, about 1900 called A Professor of Egyptology, where Sinu has uh, reincarnated, and he stabbed the Queen in the 12th Dynasty, and he comes back from the dead to uh, beg her forgiveness because she's also been reincarnated. There's an awful Finnish novel made into a catastrophic Hollywood film called The Egyptian. Not a happy ending so far, Richard. <laughs> but <laughs> there is Naguib Mahfouz, who writes a superb short story called The Return of Sinuhe, in which he adds romance. He won the Nobel Prize, didn't he? Indeed, Egyptian yes. Writer, yeah. One of Egypt's greatest authors. And it's very short. It reinterprets the story, but it somehow captures <laughs> that it's all about the mystery of the human heart. And in this, the Queen and Sinuhe were in love. He abandoned her, and actually she loved him all along. So it's it's a very romantic rewriting, but it still gets to the heart of the story, I think. Well, very briefly, because we... Uh, do you... Would you say, with the consensus, it really is brief, uh, do you think it could be called a work of fiction, an early work of fiction? Absolutely, yes. Well, that's all right then, Ron. What about you? I think it's one of the supreme masterpieces of world literature. You don't say fiction, though? It's fictional, but like Shakespeare's. And I think I would agree very much. It's li it's a, a wonderful work of literature. It's there is there are large amounts of fiction in it, but it's a it's a genre. It's a, it's, a, it's not just a straightforward fiction genre. It's a broad. It's a much richer genre than that. Yeah, would you say that Richard the Third though is not fiction? There's, well, there is a, there was a person called Richard the Third. Yes. Yeah. Therefore, that's what I'm saying. The 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 the, 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 the lines between fiction and non-fiction can be blurred, and this sort of thing. They definitely. No, are. Sorry, my fault. Red herring, whatever that is in ancient Egyptian. We've got to leave us all now. Thank you very much to Aidan Dodson, Richard Parkinson, and Roland and Mark. Next week we'll talk about the Sino-Japanese War, 1937 to 1945, often overlooked. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I hope you enjoyed it. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, your papyrus there. Yes. You're rolling it up. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, um, it's very hard to find odd passages. <laughs> Can you remember any more of it? Or do you um, the, it? the opening line, Sinuhe's opening words are Inek Shemsu Shemes Nebeth, I am a follower who followed his lord which is a standard way of beginning a, a two-motor biography, but, of course, is exactly what he doesn't do. He spends his life running away. It's, so it's, And you wonder, how do you perform that? Ironically or straightforwardly? Is it, is it like any other language? Is it like Hebrew? Is it like... Can you tell us? Very much. The problem is we only have the consonants written. So with the vowels, we're purely guessing. So there's you know, a lot of the appeal of the language, the appeal of the poetry is completely lost just due to the writing system. Yeah. We'll never know what it sounded like. Really. When you tell your, your students about this, do they, do they find it revivifies or it vivifies Egyptian history? I think uh, certain parts of the text are more 
appealing to a modern audience than others. So the very long praise poem that Sanuhe utters in praise of the new king, I usually find my students sort of beginning to nod off at that point. But then we get to the the duel between Sanuhe and his opponent, the hero of retinue, and we have this very vivid description of the combat. Um, I find my students perk up. Mm. And this happened in antiquity too. We can actually see if we plot how many um, uh, ostraca we have for different passages of the text. We have lots of the start of the work of literature. Ostraca, this is this writing on pots. Exactly. So we have lots of examples um, of um, the beginning of the text being copied out, but then it drops off as you carry on through the text. And then suddenly, at the the fight between (laughs) Sanuhe and the hero of retinue, you have a a blip, a larger number Mm. of copies. And so people clearly found this more interesting in antiquity as well. On a trivial level, it's action movies, really. They get the audience. Oh, yeah, 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 yes, yes. No, this is... is, It's it's a very exciting story. It's just... He doesn't play it just for that. I find it quite depressing. I quite like the the thought, the meaning of where is my homeland. I'd like that to get them more involved. And he said it's it's the Goliath with the axe against the man from Egypt, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, everybody loves that part. It's (laughs) it's like... Even even wonder how far there is a common origin of the, the Goliath story. You know, the idea of having this great, the, the great big champion, foreign champion, yeah. and the apparent sort of underdog. Well, being it goes able on throughout yeah. battle. Yeah. Isn't it? In, yeah. in, when 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 Caesar came here, I mean, the the Celts special, special. One thing is their best warrior went out the front and challenged yeah. the entire Roman army or the oh, yeah. best it's, man. It's, yes, it's, 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 it's a the theme. Yes. Yeah. But that actually, universally happened for a long time, didn't it? Oh yes, I think yes. it probably is. A, a, sort of face-to-face combat yeah. culture. Well, well, I think you, even you in your brilliant summary might not have mentioned the fact that when he went back to Egypt, he left his new wife and children uh, oh, yeah. behind. Yeah. Behind. Yes. I was trying to think of the correct word. Yes, as soon as he's told he can go back to Egypt, he hands over all of his social positions and his goods to his children. He calls them his chicks. Yes. So yes. there is a slight moment of tenderness that these grown-up children he's abandoning are being called the chicks. But then they, uh, they, we don't hear about them anymore. He oh. goes back to Egypt, um, and that's that, really. But abandoning is not quite true, as I remember from a few days ago reading it. He does give them all... They yes. inherit yes. what he has made. He's made quite a lot of himself by then. Yes. I mean, he's a successful yeah. chieftain and a border tribe in this semi-nomadic it, it, life. It's, it's done properly, but it's there's hints that it is a big wrench through the use of the word Not as big a wrench as you, as the British Museum, before your time, not getting hold of these. Oh, we found... I could see the pain. We found the memo where they described saying, (laughs) not perch. I was nearly sick when we found that. What were the monies involved? (laughs) Oh, I can't remember, but it wasn't much. (laughs) And it is like saying, oh, we've got the only copy of Shakespeare, the only copy of Milton, the only copy of Jane Austen, and it's a bit expensive. (laughs) We'll let somebody else. Who were the guilty men? Can we name them? Um, Samuel Birch was the person who wrote, <laughs> who wrote the description, it, it will have been the trustees. But at that period, of course, Egyptian literature, Egyptian papyri, were just exotic. Mm. You know, they'd have spent it if it had been Greek, but yeah. it, it was part of the time. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> the British Museum has, a, has, a, has a, a long track record of not buying stuff which they should have bought. Oh, there's there's bought some very good stuff as yeah, well. But there, there was also a wonderful gold, golden treasure which was on available in 1914, which ended up going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Ah, this is Sinuhe's worth much more than <laughs> any gold could possibly be. <laughs> well, here's Tom, Tom Morris to, to put an end to these <laughs> wild proceedings. Tea or uh, coffee? Can tea, I that's a tea or coffee. coffee. That brings everything to an end at the yeah, I mean, coffee, coffee. <laughs>
There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.